And I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein myself and Kyle introduce each other to films, and in this way, we catch up on our cinema. Uh, so it is the month of November 2020, uh, which means it is no theme November, which means there is no theme, and it is indeed November. Yeah. <laughs> so from week to week, uh, we've essentially just been picking whatever the fuck we feel like. Uh, so we've kind of been all over the map this month. Uh, so it's fitting that uh, this time Kyle's back on the show, and uh, he got to select the movie for this week. And uh, Kyle, uh, <laughs> what do you have for us this week? Like James Brown, I'm back! Uh, so this week I chose uh, War of the Worlds from 1953, I believe? Is it 1953? Correct. 1953. Uh, starring, I don't know, some people from the 50s. <laughs> uh, I have no idea who they are. Um yeah, I uh, I went with uh, War of the Worlds because uh, I actually saw this. I streamed it on Amazon one uh, one day, and I really enjoyed it. I was going back and checking out sci-fi films and horror films from the fifties, like uh, the Thing from Outer Space, uh, or is it Thing from Another World? Uh, thing from Another World. Thing from Another World. Um, I watched Forbidden Planet, which is not actually a remake, but is a really cool sci-fi film. So I wanted to check out some of these other big hitters. Uh, and I ended up really liking this one, and I bought it on uh, Blu-ray. Criterion Collection released a Blu-ray of it, and I rewatched it. I'm like, oh, I think Trevor's gonna really like this because there's a lot more details. Like as you said, there's a lot more detail that you notice rewatching this from when you watched it as a kid. And um, I noticed that there's quite a f- uh, quite a bit of miniature play in this film. I'm like, I think Trevor would really like to check that out. But yeah, I, that's pretty much why I wanted to pick this one. Yeah, uh, we were going back and forth through text, and I was noticing that you were in the mood for classic sci-fi. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know, man, you should indulge that. Like, well, strike while the iron's hot. Um, so this one was a lot of fun uh, for me to come back to um, because uh, I saw this film um, when I was very young. Um, I had a, a stretch of time where I was, like, tugging at my, my dad's shirt and asking him to rent B-movies for me. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of Ray Harryhausen stuff and a lot of, like, 1950s, B monster movies and stuff and uh i think we had a a a couple of books at our school library in elementary school uh, about like movie monsters and stuff and i remember there was a couple of black and white photos in there that would always creep me out um one of them was uh rob botine um with the uh the spider head prop from the thing Mm -hmm. it's a very famous production photo of him like with a shit-eating grin and this horrifying fucking monster suspended in the background behind him and it was just in a book at my fucking elementary school library. And I would flip through that book, and I'd get to that page, and I'd go, ah! <laughs> and then, you know, I'd do, like, the little kid thing and come right back to it. Yeah. Um, but one of those books also had a segment devoted to, like, space monsters and stuff. And they did have a still photo of the alien uh, from this movie that's only featured in a couple of shots of it. But... Mm-hmm. Um, Sometime around then, when I was in grade school, um, my dad rented this, I think, from our local library on a shitty VHS that had been watched God knows how many times. Mm. Um, so the image fidelity was not great. Um, nothing looked great back then. <laughs> uh, so for you, uh, Kyle, actually, um, folks at home, took the trouble of uh, hand-delivering his his Criterion Blu-ray to my mailbox, um, socially distant and everything. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, uh, specifically so I could see this movie at the best quality available and uh, yeah I have to thank you for that because it makes a difference this mm. was like seeing it for the first time honestly because my memories of it included you know that 
fucking tracking and static yeah. effect like from a VHS player. Um, so like seeing seeing it clear as day and like the colors popped so much, it, it really made a huge difference. Well, I think that uh, I'd kind of like to watch the VHS version because as I might have mentioned before, like I have the original Star Wars trilogy on VHS and not too long ago I went through and watched them all and it's really a nice way to revisit them because the the effects aren't really touched, they haven't been messed with and the puppets look a little more realistic because they haven't been, you know, cleaned up. But, you know, they're still nice to watch on VHS, but I rewatched uh, like the Disney Plus version of Empire Strikes Back and wow, like I, I, had, I haven't seen Empire Strikes Back like that before like i haven't really messed with the blu-ray or like an hd version of it and it was i I was like engaged heavily in a movie i've seen once or twice a year since i was five Uh, (laughs) but it's just amazing what like just what the technology can do to make these older what probably would be unwatchable to us now if we were to watch them on their original format and just cleans them up and makes them look so nice um so i I wanted to uh i guess i wanted to ask you um are you there's quite a bit of miniature work in here. Were you able to discern where the miniature work was pretty easily? Because there was a couple of moments it took me a minute. I'm like, oh, that's a miniature there. Yeah, um, there are quite a few miniature shots in this, um, many of which are very obvious because it's, you know, props being pulled on strings. And, and anytime something's exploding, generally mm-hmm. it's stock footage or a miniature because, you know, that shit costs money, yeah. <laughs> even in miniature form. Um, because I mean, God, you have some wonderful artists putting those pieces together and everything only to have it blow up in flames and whatnot. That has to be a weird feeling for those people that put in all those hard hours. But, um, the thing actually that jumped out to me the most, um, because like there are miniature shots in this film for sure. Um, uh, the thing that jumped out to me the most though, was the, the matte shots, um, the Mm, matte paintings. Um, there are many, many, many matte paintings in this film, many of which are, uh, unfortunately kind of obvious because it's on blu-ray and yeah. because it was cleaned up by the criterion collection like it's gonna look stunning and as a result some of those effects are going to you know have some more obvious seams to them um but just the sheer number of them and like the almost like biblical imagery that they're trying to render with mm-hmm. some of them is is it's a visually arresting um but yeah, I think I noticed those more than the miniatures because um, in terms of like pyrotechnics and whatnot, um, despite how this film may have been advertised or how it may be captured in your memory, um, the number of like exploding buildings and just like, you know, massive city destruction and stuff, the, the number of shots devoted to that in the runtime of this film is maybe a little less than you remember. Mm-hmm. I should probably uh, give a little background about the film. Uh, so... Basically, what's happening is aliens have come from Mars and they're uh, destroying some of the world, and the the humans have to try to stop it. Um, this, if you don't know the history of it, uh, War of the Worlds is written by some dude. Uh, I can't think of his name. H.G. Uh, Wells. There you go, H.G. Wells. I'm like, I know it's somebody. I'm like, I I remember, I know who it is, but I'm like, I just can't think of the name. But I believe uh, I believe this is uh, how it was introduced. Orson Welles was actually reading war, the war of the worlds on radio before they had TVs. And I guess some people thought that it was like a real announcement because I guess that's kind of how it was. Uh, like if you tuned in like two minutes after it started, people thought it was actually happening. So I guess there was some panic around it, which is really cool. Um, and I was, well, was Orson, when did uh, citizen Kane come out? Oh, I want to say that was the 40s. Was it the so it was probably shortly after that. 
Did you notice any kind of ode to Orson Welles in this? No, um, but I'm not terribly familiar with his filmography other than Transformers the movie. (laughs) (laughs) I know him mostly from champagne commercials. Yeah, it's the French champagne. It doesn't do anything? (laughs) It doesn't do anything? It doesn't do anything? (laughs) 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 Uh, Paul Mass on Orson Welles commercial, folks. If you haven't seen it, stop now. Yeah, stop, stop your car, turn on your hazards, and watch that video. <laughs> Seriously, pull over, pull out the YouTube, get it going. It's worth your time. But um, No, I didn't notice any no, uh, nods to that, but um, fun fact um, for me personally, uh, I actually got to hear that radio drama. It's um, on Spotify. Um, no, when I was a kid. Oh, wow. Uh, when I was in middle school, I had a really cool teacher um, that he... Uh, I think it was like the TV and radio program or something. I I went to a middle school that had that. Um, we uh, he played it for us and he prefaced it with with the introduction that you just gave. That uh, mm. he said, I uh, I think after like twenty minutes into the program, it's an entirely seamless like audio drama. So like if you miss the introduction, it is straight up just p- played played for truth. Like like mm. this is an invasion. And uh, your the framing character is just a reporter, like relaying information about what he's seeing happening and whatnot. So if you tuned in late, you wouldn't have got that that you know curtain call thing where it's just like, oh hey folks, uh, this is a show. Uh, everything you're about to hear here is fiction. Don't worry, there are no Martians, not yet anyway. <laughs> but um, yeah, he played it for us, and uh, he told us all about the public hysteria that came a- came about as a result of it. Uh, apparently. It is a little bit of a old wives' tale. Um, there was some hysteria, but it wasn't gotcha. like a, a nationwide panic or something. It was it was it was smaller than than you might have you might have thought. But um, it is a really cool historical anecdote to come back to, though. Yeah, um, I guess so. Like I said, I don't really know any of the actors, and there I was trying to find like, did I see these actors in anything else? Like my. Uh, my knowledge of this time period is almost entirely limited to uh, uh, American sci-fi movies and a few French and or Russian films from the from <laughs> that era. So I don't know a lot of uh, know about these actors too much. Um, do you want to kind of talk about the characters a little bit? Yeah, sure. So um, we have uh, Science Man, mm-hmm. um, who is our lead character. Uh, his name is Doctor Clayton Forrester, played by Gene Barry, and uh one thing about the cast of this, and I, I could be reaching because I don't actually know, but um, this movie cost $2 million in 1953. I don't know if that was an exorbitant amount for the time, um, but glancing at Gene Barry's filmography, it looks like he was kind of split right down the middle between a television and a film actor. Um, I haven't really seen any of his other films except for, of course, the 2005 remake of War of yeah. the Worlds, which apparently was his final film role. Um, but this character, Dr. Clayton Forrester, um, I call him Science Man because um, in the 1950s uh, and 60s, uh, just this chunk of sci-fi uh, American film and Japanese film also, um, you had this this trope of the Science Man uh, who would just kind of like wander onto the scene and have all the answers. And the funny thing about casting in this particular era of film was that um, these characters usually like 
any leading man would have that like Gregory Peck quality about them. Mm-hmm. Where it's like they, they're usually tall. They usually got dark hair. They usually got a square ass jaw. Uh, they can throw a punch just as well as they can, you know, compute complex mathematics and whatnot. Yes. Um, so they're like the everyman, but not everyman. They're beyond that. They are the uberman. Um, so this guy, from like the moment he's introduced to us, he is a he is a smooth customer. And he has all the answers. He knows everything about everything. <laughs> he's kind of the poor man's Laurence Olivier. Like he's a little bit. He's kind of got like that those those features a little bit. But yeah, he's just he's if you kind of smushed him down a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I want to say there were a couple instances of him standing on rocks or the leading lady standing in ditches because his height, his height, his height fluctuates pretty dramatically from shot to shot. I didn't pay attention to it, but I'll definitely end up watching this movie again here in probably a year. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to try to pay attention to that. Well, in particular, when he's first introduced to her, they're walking alongside each other, and then he just like kind of strategically puts himself up on like a little bit of a bump in the road. <laughs> so he's like looking down at her. And then some of the other crowd scenes, like when he's surrounded by the other the other male characters and her, you get the sense he's not a big guy, <laughs> um, but he talks big. Um, he he kind of has that quality about him where it's like there's that Family Guy joke of like 1950s buff, mm-hmm. where it's just like imagine Kirk Douglas body, but not quite because Kirk Douglas was actually exceptionally buff for back then. Yeah, but just like you puff out your chest and you wear your pants up to your nipples. Yeah. <laughs> And he kind of has that air about him, even though, like, he's supposed to be playing the scientist character. And I want to say he's doing a thing with his voice because it is very, very deep. Yes, maybe he's trying to sound a little bit more. Uh, I'm thinking, like, Laurence Olivier in Spartacus. I think the only film I've ever seen him in that I know of is Spartacus, as he's in um, uh, uh, Kubrick's uh, Spartacus. And he has a very, like... uh, deep voice and he's like you'll be my body servant maybe yeah i think he might be maybe emulating that a little bit yeah he, he's definitely putting on a little bit of a, a voice to sound authoritative or, or stronger i guess he actually looks a lot like my uh uh one of my great uncles when they were young like you see pictures of your great uncle and just like the the hair the ears like he looked just like him I don't know if you know who he is, but um, he actually kind of reminds me of a, a less sinister Paul Shinar. Who's he? Um, Paul Shinar, um, I'm trying to think of what you may have seen him in, because uh, he, he has a really strong voice. Um, oh, uh, he's, uh, was it Mr. Zoza or whatever from uh, the Al Pacino Scarface? Um, he's the Colombian drug dealer guy. Oh, like the, yes, the yes, 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 You know the voice. Yes, yes. He kind of reminds me of him, um, but less sinister, because Paul Chenard usually played bad guys, as far as I know. Yeah, he's like the guy who does the voiceover for uh, Cassandra's dad in Wayne's World 2. <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually. Um, he famously played uh, the voice of Jenner, uh, the, the villainous rat from The Secret of Nim. Ooh. He's one of the earliest bad guy characters I latched onto when I was a kid. Is that where the rat gets hung? I don't I think, think there's a, a there's not a hanging, but or he falls like, does he like fall to his death or something? I think Tarzan is where the guy gets hung. Same oh, mustache. Yeah, that was that was a good hanging. <laughs> that was a good hanging. But uh, Jenner gets a he gets poked in the chest with a sword. They have miniature swords, and uh, he gets a dagger thrown in his back. And yes, he falls uh, into some mud after okay. that. Gotcha. So you may have you may have seen it, but. Um, 
Yeah, uh, in terms of other characters, uh, we have uh, Sylvia Van Buren, played by Anne Robinson, who is just here to be 1950s gal. Did she die at 48, or is she still alive? Oh, actually, yeah, Kyle has a thing going here. Oh, damn, uh, she... Uh, she is 91 years old. Damn, dude. There's only two <laughs> ways actresses from the 50s go. They either died young or they are still alive. Yeah, Kyle's right. Like He started calling this, I think, when we did Captain Blood. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it uh, seems to be the case across the board. I think she passed away like right when we recorded that episode. Yeah, too. right when we recorded it. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, oh, Anne. <laughs> Anne, Oops. look out. Oops. Stay inside, Anne. <laughs> But yeah, this uh, Anne Robinson, she plays Sylvia Van Buren, and uh, unfortunately, this is one of those roles where she is just a gal yep. in a in a hard time to be a gal. <laughs> oh, this is there's some uh, there is some I want to call them Americanisms, and there's definitely some uh, some gender roles going on with her character. Um, did you notice her serving donuts and coffee at one point? Oh, man, I wanted those so bad. <laughs> yep. those, those cinnamon buns are, are as big as your fucking face. I'm watching <laughs> Twin Peaks right now, and that first season, donuts are very, a very big part of that first season. But they have a, they have a shot where the the lady who works at the the police station likes to stack the donuts, and they in just one of these episodes, she has all these donuts just stacked all nice. I'm like, oh my god, they look so good. <laughs> But yeah, she's kind of not really a character in this. And yeah. all, and to be honest, there's not really a lot of strong characters in this movie, except for Handsome Guy. Yeah, actually, it's kind of impressive. The The scale of this movie is very impressive for any, any time, um, but in particular this era, where they're, they really aren't trying to create strong characters, because this is a global story. Um, so the bulk of the storytelling is conducted through... Um, radio reports and narration and whatnot because we're trying to tell a story that is happening all across the planet so um, telling like doing like we did in the Steven Spielberg 2005 remake where it's the story of a family like caught in the crossfire of mm-hmm. something something larger than they can possibly comprehend um, instead of trying to narrow the focus like they did in that one and this one they just blow it way the fuck out and we do have a couple of principal characters to latch on to but we kind of jump back and forth between following their more intimate affairs and then like the chaos that's unfolding across the entire planet. So it, it doesn't really require strong characters to tell that kind of story. But um, in terms of characters, actually the, the only other one that I'll, I'll highlight here is a uh, less Tremaine uh, who plays major general man. Um, and the only reason I want to highlight him is because he has a bitchin' mustache. Mm. And uh, in terms of delivering exposition, he has, like, that Dan Aykroyd quality about him where it's like he can he can talk a mile a minute and throw all sorts of, like, science jargon shit at you, mm-hmm. and you believe it. <laughs> like, that is that is actor man. Dan Aykroyd like, is... Man, that's the most articulate military man I've ever met. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd has a really good moment in Spies Like Us. Like, his, his introductory shot is he's talking to, uh, like, his superior, and he just rattles off this, just it's just eloquent and perfect. Like, wow, that was really good. So, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, no, the one... I, I, I referenced him very intentionally because he yeah. has that gift of gab where he can just go. He God, I love that. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's good stuff. Tommy boy. His, that scene of just him just just talking right there with him is really good. Uh, the one character I wanted to highlight, I had some good laughs with him because he's only in like the first, I think like the first 15 minutes of the movie, is Pudgy Cop. Uh, he's the one that... Uh, 
he's the one at the the lookout, I guess, where they they look for forest fires and stuff like that. But he goes to talk to the campers, and he like, you want some uh, some fish? He's like, don't mind if I do. And grabs some food and takes a cigarette. And he's like, you want a light? And he's like, oh no, I'm saving this for later. <laughs> he's just kind of mooching off of him. What, what an asshole! <laughs> he's, kind of, he's a friendly asshole. Yeah. No, he's he's there for like the only couple bits of comedy we have in the whole movie where his introduction he's shown like cheating at cards mm-hmm. <laughs> and then right after that he's eating someone else's roll and getting all cozy and stuff he he's a colorful character in a movie that maybe could have used more of them um, but yeah sadly he's absent after like the first couple scenes of the movie i think this is uh, this is the film that sparked like the 1950s sci-fi craze if i'm not mistaken uh, that may be true um, it's actually difficult for me to structure in my brain because um, color and black and white were still kind of a mm. we're still kind of doing both um, in 1953 because there are movies that were released several years after this that, that were in black and white probably for you know financial purposes or something but um, I want to say this is one of the earliest and yeah one of the most memorable of, of like Earth versus the you know space creatures or whatever kind of movies um and there were several other imitators that would come later like mm-hmm. you know um, earth versus the flying saucers and stuff which is a ray harryhausen movie and then um just the 1950s for b movies it was the atomic age everything was coming from space or made big by radiation um this one though uh, the legacy of it is partially what makes it really fascinating is that like you said it was based on a hg wells novel um, an H.G. Wells novel from 1898, mm-hmm. um, which I think actually uh, the fact that this came out in the 1950s actually kind of makes makes it slightly more impactful, at least from an American perspective, um, because think about where we were um, in 1953 as opposed to 1898. Like, yeah, like our our advancements in like military might and stuff, we we're we were doing things that were unbelievable. Um, and in 1898, it's like, you know, we, we have, like, Gatling guns. <laughs> it's like, uh, we didn't have nuclear bombs, though. Well, <laughs> I mean, at, in 1898, I mean, assuming this guy had been working on this uh, this novel for a while, like, the thought of Mars, it's like, oh, it's impossibly far away. There could be anything there. Now we're like, now we've been there, dude. <laughs> it's not that big a deal. Um, I think the ground zero for this was actually the day the Earth stood still, which is 1951, and the thing also came out in 1951. Oh, yeah. So, so aliens were very much a thing, I guess, by the time this came out, but not to the scale, really. I think Metropolis is like the first like real sci-fi film. I've never seen Metropolis. I think it's like fucking two and a half hours long, and it's from like the 1920s. Uh, was Journey to the Moon before that? Uh, journey. Because I mean, the, I mean that counts I, as sci-fi. We're, we're shooting a fucking bullet in the moon's eye. I suppose. <laughs> and, and there's little gremlin critters on the moon. <laughs> also, I've seen that Smashing Pumpkins music video. I know what I'm talking about. Invaders <laughs> from Mars. Uh, also kind of sounds like it was we shopped at a different studio. Like, like well, let's do the H.G. Wells thing. It's like this other studio did it. <laughs> I'd actually really want to see the uh, Toby Hooper remake of that one. I've never seen it, but it's part of, uh, I think he had a, a canon deal with them where he made three pictures. It was uh, Texas Chainsaw 2, Invaders from Mars, and a uh, previous episode, uh, Life Force. Hmm. Um, but the only one of those I haven't seen front to back was uh, Invaders from Mars. But um, yeah, I think this one being set in the 1950s, you know, 
post-World War II, post-Korean War, like in terms of from an American perspective, again, um, because I believe H.G. Wells was British. Um, from an American perspective, it's really fascinating to come into this story in 1953 because, you know, we just kicked the ass of the world a couple times over by this point. And the events that unfold in this movie are intensely humbling in spite of that. Yeah. Um, so it, it's kind of like a gut check, I guess, to the American public that's like, you know, shit's not like shit's pretty good right now. But, you know, you got to watch out. <laughs> like it's, it, there's a I don't know if it's like just the culture of the time or maybe it's the book. Maybe I should just read the book eventually. Um, the the religious aspect of the film. And you mentioned the matte paintings, uh, too. Yeah. Um, there's, I think we have a couple of, uh, of moments where we have quite a few extras, um, like on the hillside and like people going up the mountain. You can see where it stops, where people are not moving anymore, but we have, you know, quite a bit of like extra work in here. But, um, there's kind of a religious tone to the film, kind of like, uh, like it's almost like assuring to the audience. It's like, listen, we're doing a movie about aliens, but don't, don't worry. We still believe in God. We still believe in Jesus that we're, we're not taking that out of the picture. We're just telling you a fun story. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I, I'm not sure exactly where that may have come from. Uh, it all signs point to uh, that not having been content in the novel. Apparently HG's well, HG Wells um, was irreligious. Um, borderline atheist as far as I know um, so he he wasn't into the idea of pushing the, the religious aspects of the storytelling um, maybe the director inserted that maybe the writer did I don't know maybe the studio did um, but yeah it is definitely a thing here I mean we have a, a priest serving as a martyr early mm-hmm. in the story um, where he's the one who's trying to reason with the aliens he's the one that tries he he looks at the military pointing their guns at the martians and he says um no there has to be a better way i i i have faith that my actions here will make a difference and he gets obliterated um which is kind of a interesting moment in the movie um especially if maybe you were on the side of the priest at that moment that would be incredibly shocking in 1953 i think it'd be unfathomable like someone killing a priest in a movie yeah it might be a little upsetting (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, it stretches all throughout the movie, like, in particular from that point on, because, like I said, uh, some of those matte paintings are, I would describe them as biblical, Mm -hmm. um, because, um, like you said, the people on the hills um, and the people leaving uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco and whatnot and and heading for the mountains, that's that's literally an exodus. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the matte paintings are used there to increase the scale of it. So we do have a shit ton of extras you know, moving about on the hills, but we we use the map painting to stretch that and like increase the number of people present like fivefold. Um, but yeah, we have a literal exodus at some point in this movie, and it's actually one of the more fascinating and better executed sequences in the whole movie um, because like the public hysteria aspect of it was something that um, you easily could have dodged in this kind of movie. You easily could have omitted and you still would have had an enjoyable film, but it, it adds an extra layer of depth that like kind of heightens the drama a little bit. Um, and then of course, by the time you get to the finale of the movie, it's like, okay, we're getting pretty fucking heavy handed mm-hmm. with, with our religious content here. Well, I mean, it seems like it almost, it, it might be deliberate and it might be kind of two sided. Like, uh, I said, like, some of the Americanisms, uh, when this meteor, well, when this spaceship, uh, or what, what, I'm not exactly sure, I guess it's a port, uh, 
some kind of transport for his ship. I'm not really sure because it definitely comes um, in as a rock. It just looks like a big giant rock. And when it crashes, uh, this guy, I guess he's the, I don't know if he's the mayor of the town or whatever, but he's just like, oh man, this is awesome. We can uh, we can charge people to come up here and look at this. And then this guy's like, oh, we'll bring up picnic tables too. And like, no, 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 don't do that. Then they'll, then they'll bring their own lunches. They're not going to pay for food in the in the town. Like immediately he's trying to, trying to profit off of this. Um, and it, it could just be like, uh, like, obviously that's what we would do, but it could also be the director kind of like, look at this piece of shit. Like this, of course, this is what we would do as a, as a society or as a culture. Well, it's the American entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. You know, it's like, we're trying to make lemon lemonade, man. T-shirts. <laughs> it's like, you gotta, you, <laughs> t-shirts, motherfucker. T-shirts. Space balls, the flame trauma. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I love actually that this movie begins with a meteor crash, um, meteorite crash, because um, it, it's a very familiar opening that's often referenced in other films. Uh, I I am a sucker for these kinds of B movies. Actually, it kind of it, it's kind of weird, but like I I prefer um, like the more clandestine threat, I guess. Like I I really love these kinds of B movies or, or monster movies in general, where it's like. There's a small problem that only a few people are aware of that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and usually it's isolated to just like a small town or something like uh, the blob is like the prototypical example of that, where it's like it's a small it's a small problem that it grows and gr- literally grows. And then like it's there's this conflict between the teenagers and the adults in the in, in the area where it's like you have to believe me like there's a monster out there and it's like ah you're just crying wolf Hmm. whereas this one it's very straightforward as soon as the as soon as the threat is imminent everybody's aware there's no mystery anymore um but that's part of the charm of it um but i did like that the the alien spacecraft arrives in a meteorite um which is enticing to the public and like everybody gathers around it like you said it's almost treated like a tourist attraction in fact explicitly it's stated that Mm -hmm. like we can make this into a tourist attraction because I, I heard somewheres that those meteorite thingamabobbers are heavy. You can't move them, so we may as well leave it here and put a sign up and charge admission and stuff. Um, but uh, this is where we're introduced to Dr. Clayton Forrester, who, like, uh, we get the, the meet cute between him and Ann Robinson, where, like, she she knows who he is, but somehow doesn't recognize him. Uh, yeah, she she asks. I think she's about to light a cigarette. Like, she either asks him for a light or asks him if he wants a cigarette. And he's like, I don't smoke. And like after watching Mad Men, I'm like, uh, I think there's something wrong with this guy because everybody <laughs> fucking smoked in the fifties. Everybody. And she's probably yeah, a little like, bit like cautious. I'm like, I don't know about this guy. <laughs> like he's weird. I don't like him. Also, and it's interesting. I don't know if this was uh, how they they did it with films back then but he could not give a shit less about her like early on like usually when you have these meat cutes they're like oh both kind of interested and he's just like eh, i don't really care well i was talking to you before we recorded like he he has like a james bond quality to him like mm-hmm. a specifically a, a sean connery rest in peace um yeah. quality to him where he's 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 just too smooth for school like, yeah he's just too he's too cool like nothing surprises him everything fascinates him but he, he never gets too excited he's no. just like hmm fascinating <laughs> and then, like even with her like he plays it coy he's very cool because he does have like a subtle line there when they first meet where uh she g- apparently got her master's degree in something or other um and he's like whatever <laughs> 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 but she rec- she knows his name 
from him being like on some scientific journal or something and he's wearing glasses at the time which it's like these bright red horn rim glasses that mm-hmm. look terrible and thankfully he doesn't wear them throughout the entire film but um when he takes his glasses off he he mentions and this is him being too cool where he's like oh i only need them for seeing things at long range it's like <laughs> i take them off when i want to see things up close and they kind of like glances at her and it's like okay <laughs> it's like that that's how we that's how we flirt when we're we're too cool to explicitly do so so he's he's very he's being very cool about it I, actually now that i'm thinking about it i think the director might be a little bit critical of uh how we would as a culture react to something like this because the, the first thing the military guys do when they come onto the scene which i i personally love this is i love this trope in movies is where we haven't we have a problem and then we have to bring the military into it because then you know they're gonna fuck it up. <laughs> they always fuck it up in the movies. Because their first reaction is bomb it, <laughs> whatever it is, <laughs> bomb it. <laughs> and it doesn't work out for them. Well, I I like that. Uh, I mean, the military is portrayed in a, a mostly positive. Light. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, we're, we weren't doing that back then. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God no. But uh, especially this time. Yeah. The the major general character he's portrayed as like incredibly competent and he's very dramatic, but. Um, when he's called in, like he's not called in until some people are dead, um, which actually is, it's actually kind of irked me how quickly this one got rolling because that's actually usually my favorite part of these movies is the build up to mm. like when all, all hell's about to break loose. Like um, I've mentioned it several times on the show, but uh, Rodan, uh, Radon, uh, the uh, Toho film about the giant red pterodactyl. Yeah. You know him from Godzilla King of the Monsters. Okay. Um, he had his own film. Uh, in 1956 which i think was toho's first color film um the opening of that movie is one of my favorite opening 20 it's almost like it's up there with them um, mm. in terms of like how oh, much i love, I love it as a as a bee monster movie because it, like it's about a giant pterodactyl and yet the first 20 minutes of it take place in a mine and feature no pterodactyls <laughs> um and it's it's wonderful i love it so much and this one gets rolling really fucking fast so we have this meteorite and like you said um maybe we were maybe the director was kind of like playing a little bit of fun on the american public here mm-hmm. because yeah one of the first things that somebody does to this thing is hit it with a shovel yeah. <laughs> that was pretty fucking hilarious where i like that the doctor character he's like well that's not a good idea <laughs> like, <laughs> he, he doesn't he doesn't raise his voice he just takes his glasses off and he's like Huh. <laughs> like I don't know. Maybe I'm in the wrong county. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if H.G. Wells was uh, critical of American culture when he was writing that. I don't think he would be too savvy on it. But yeah, I think the director might be poking a little bit of fun here. I mean, honestly, I I, I could totally see somebody doing that. Yeah. <laughs> like it's like, hey, it's an exotic something or other from space. I better hit it with something. <laughs> uh, so one thing I want to talk about and kind of spotlight here because. Uh, I thought that was this was a very strange moment in the editing. Um, so we have our introduction of the meteorite. At this point, no one knows what it is. We just know it's from space. Um, and then the doctor is invited to hang out in the town uh, until until the thing cools off, because um, he does plan on examining it. Um, and we immediately cut to like a dance hall, mm-hmm. and this is where your Americanisms that you were talking about come in, where it's like, oh oh no, none of these clothes are good. <laughs> and oh no, this music is questionable as well. It's um, a fucking get, hoedown. It's a fucking hoedown. And uh, yeah, it's it's a very 
I'm trying to find the right word to describe it, but it's it's very vanilla, is what it is. So if you've ever seen the movie Son-in-Law, where he gets uh, Rebecca's mom all dressed up and they go to the the hoedown, and the guy's like, "Now nah, promenade and go around now that that that's literally what's happening." Yeah, but it's it's very uh, it's very sterile or asexual yeah. <laughs> in nature well, so yeah i think we are poking fun i think we are poking fun a little bit like how americans would react to this and i think it's very subtle but i think part of why i'm on the fence is a scene like this where we don't have folks drinking beer and uh maybe like i said this is it feels kind of like a baptist film because like we got all these kids hanging out and uh they're drinking coke and orange soda and they're all just kind of talking and stuff like that like nobody's smoking cigarettes or anything it's all nice clean family fun that's happening here i think yeah, the priest is there the priest is present yeah and he's also the the leading lady's like uncle mm. uh, so yeah he is just hovering in the background of every shot of this dance hall scene and yeah like you said there's no alcoholic beverages everybody's drinking coke from the bottles um, it may as well be a malt shop or something, yeah. but no, we don't even have a malt shop in this town. We're too wholesome for that, so it's a, it's like a little <laughs> dance hall, and we're having a hoedown. But um, what I thought was strange about this is uh, we cut to that, uh, and then the doctor sits down with the leading lady, and uh, he says something about, "Yeah, if we took all the energy in this dance hall, we could kick that meteorite back up into space." It's like, okay, doc, whatever. Like, you're a man of science, correct? <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that man's ever been to medical school. Yeah, but um, what what I found really jarring about this is uh, we have three other folks um, out by the meteorite, like, yeah, watching it because there were fires that were caused by it. That we initially like one of the first scenes of the movie is us putting out fires, um, and they're just there to make sure none of that starts up again. Um, so we cut back, uh, we cut back and forth between those people scouting the meteorite in the dead of night. And then some, like, a uh, hatch starts to unscrew from it. Um, and we have these three guys watching watching the lid pop off of this meteorite. And we cut back and forth from the dance hall to that hatch opening. And it's just such a weird cut where it's like, why did we bother to jump back to town? <laughs> like, yeah. why would why would you go from, like, the, the intense, like, drama and anticipation of seeing, like, this hatch opening on this, this space object... And then to the dance hall, <laughs> and then back to the thing. It's like, I get it. You're trying to establish that you know everything's peaceful, of like a couple miles down the road, but it, it's just such a weird cut. It doesn't belong, if you ask me. Yeah, I like uh, I like how these guys react to it too. They're like, oh, like they kind of hide, and then like, oh, let's let, well, let's tell our friends. Yeah, they'll know what that is. They'll know what the white flag means. Like everybody knows what that means. Like these guys are fucking idiots. Um, I do like how how these guys get it. Uh, the, the practical, like the 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 special effects here is a. L I mean, you have to consider the time it was made, and you just kind of have to be like, I understand what they're trying to accomplish here. Don't critique it because it's the best they could do. But uh, these guys get vaporized, and I do like how we get the reveal of that. And I wish there was a little bit more vaporization in here. Yeah, I, I want to say it was prohibitively time-consuming and expensive to render it, because um, as far as I know, the process is much more complicated than it looks. Mm. Um, but I, I actually didn't... 
I didn't really have too many problems with the effects. Like I thought they still looked quite good. Um, the only thing I would, the only exception to that, I guess, would be some of the wires on the spaceships, <laughs> which which are very apparent on the 1080p Blu-ray. I was gonna say on the Blu-ray that yeah, you're gonna see the wires. <laughs> yeah, on on my old VHS though, hmm, no, no, you wouldn't notice that at all, especially through the eyes of a child you're not going to care about that but um yeah all the other like disintegration effects and like beam effects and stuff i thought looked pretty stunning um but yeah uh, the the hatch opens on this and it it, it comes in the form of like a, a, a lid that you unscrew um and apparently this is taken directly from the text there's a lot of deviations from the text um i'm not going to bother to try to point out all of them but uh one of the key differences is uh spotlighted in uh the steven spielberg version of the story which is the uh the tripods mm. um which are the the key like martian war machines um, yeah that that horn that plays is is iconic actually like i don't know if we've mentioned it too many times on the podcast but i happen to like that remake quite a bit oh it's excellent uh with the exception of maybe like the tim robbins, tim robbins house yeah. um yeah. tim robbins house and that kid joining the military in the middle of the movie yeah. he needed to die like he really needed to die <laughs> i don't like that that actor uh he plays steve on uh, shameless fiona's boyfriend and there's something about that dude just i do not like him uh, justin chadwick he uh, he played a uh, goku in the live action dragon ball evolution movie Ooh, that I exists know, i didn't know that was a thing <laughs> that exists and we may have to cover it because it is awful <laughs> um fun yeah, that could be. Mm, I don't know if fun is the word, but it's it's a thing that happened. But um, yeah, he needed to die. Tim Robbins' scenes needed to be cut down a bit. But um, what was I talking about? Oh, not that uh, I'm the, sorry. Not that Tim Robbins doesn't do a good job. I think that he's very menacing in that scene. It's just it, there's no. We don't need it in the movie. We spend too long there. Is yeah, all, is all like the things that happen there pretty yeah. good actually. Yeah. But we just spent too long in that basement. Yeah. But. Um, Oh, what I was talking about was the design of the machines. Mm -hmm. um, so the designs of the machines um, in the Spielberg one, I guess, are slightly closer to, like, they, they are still different from the novel. Um, but the idea was they had three legs. That's why they're referred to as tripods. Um, in this one, uh, they do try to render that effect exactly one time in the movie, um, but it was apparently too dangerous and prohibitively expensive to render that effect. So there, when the spaceship first emerges from the gully um you do actually see like three like kind of like elec electric beams of light coming out from beneath it um and it is mentioned in dialogue but apparently that effect like they couldn't do it throughout the rest of the movie so they were trying to stay faithful to the text but they were overly ambitious with how they were trying to render it how are we allocating funds back then like what were we what were we putting our money in was it the set designs is that how you were you were doing it or was it just like you had to make sure that uh Lawrence Olivier and uh uh what's this uh Marlon Brando had enough booze money to do the to do the job <laughs> like I don't know where all the money was going I'm not sure either I mean it was the studio system so you had all these big name actors signed to like 10 movie deals or whatever and they belonged to a studio so yeah that was probably where a lot of your money went but uh, it needs to be said, man, like all these miniatures and matte paintings, those are trained artists mm -hmm. that are working on. These are artists and artisans putting out these effects. So, it, you know, the hours they put towards those products were not cheap. Um, and then a lot of this kind of effects work was, I don't know if it was pioneered, um, but they certainly had to get kind of inventive with how they rendered some of these details. So um, they probably didn't have much time. 
um, but that time was costly. We are on sets for the most part in this movie, and uh, especially the parts where we're like outdoors, they look really, really good. Oh yeah, yeah. Some of the outdoor scenes it kind of reminded me of uh, Universal, like Frankenstein, mm-hmm. like Universal monster movies, where it's like it's quote unquote the woods, but you can tell that the woods have a an end in the form of a painting of a sky in the background. Well, I'm thinking specifically of uh, Bride of Frankenstein, and I think this yeah. movie beats uh, those sets easily. Oh yeah, I mean these sets I think are smaller, but mm. they're uh, they're put to great use, um, and some of the camera work really makes good use of the terrain that they have um but yeah uh the initial emergence of the martian war machine uh, they're kind of like manta ray shaped mm-hmm. but we won't see that for a little while um the hatch comes undone and we get this like kind of like copper cobra head with like a it, it's like a honeycomb pattern mm-hmm. behind a red lens and oh it's so cool looking <laughs> and then it just kind of whips around real slow and uh these guys walk towards it mm-hmm. waving a white flag that i don't know how that guy had a white flag in his trunk but <laughs> the other one has a handkerchief yeah. the other one has like a flag on a stick and this is like a little bit of an americanism where it's like okay you're just assuming there's a universal language yeah. you're, just, uh, you're just assuming that you know it god damn it we're americans we can figure this out yeah <laughs> but um i d- did find it unfortunate that literally the only person of any sort of color in this mm-hmm. movie is obliterated in, in the first the he's one of the initial kills in the movie <laughs> Ooh, i was watching this i'm like i think this is a pretty decent portrayal you get his eth- like you get his ethnicity by he says something about uh about food but it, it's not a like a uh, a poorly written character like he doesn't have much of a uh, he has a slight accent yeah and he he makes some mention of some regional foods and that's about it but he's <laughs> just like he's just like one of the guys like nobody he's just one of the guys yeah. and he dies in the, fr- yeah. in the first instance where anyone's killed this movie was ahead of its time really <laughs> but yeah the three of them they're just disintegrated but it looks like a Imagine, like, a fountain of sparks mm-hmm. uh, coming from, like, a welding torch or something, but, like, bathed in red light. <laughs> they sp- yeah, they spew out of the the, the eye of this uh, cobra head thing. It's like an antenna. Um, and the sound, uh, as soon as you hear it, like, if you've seen Abby movie, you know the sound because it's instantly iconic. I was going to say, uh, the sound design I knew was going to be a, a big thing for you. I think you even mentioned that you were... Uh, you wanted to come back and listen to the sound design. What did you think? It, it's a little, um, it's a little excessive at times. I feel like, especially near the end, I feel like it, there's just a lot of it going on. But I mean, in defense, that's kind of the point. Like it's supposed to be like the the most chaotic mo- uh, moment of the film. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, anytime we're getting a whole host of things getting blown up in this movie. It is just a barrage of noise, mm-hmm. um, but and unfortunately they only have like two or three noises. But that's part of what makes them so iconic. It's like, it's like Godzilla's roar, mm-hmm. where oh, part yeah. of part of why it's so burned into your memory is that you've heard it fifty thousand goddamn times over how many decades? Yeah, like I know this is just as well as the uh, like the the Tyrannosaurus Rex from Jurassic Park. Like you know exactly it immediately the, the, the baby elephant mixed with a. a Tiger roar. I was gonna say tiger or lion, something like that. Yeah, but yeah, it was apparently a baby elephant blaring its trunk is a kind of a happenstance thing where some foley artist just happened to hear that and they're like, 
okay okay <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah godzilla's roar is a it's a contrabass being uh rubbed with a like a steel mesh glove hmm. yeah, who the fuck came up with that i don't know but it works and uh yeah uh, apparently one of the iconic laser effects uh the sound was it actually when you think about it like you've heard the sound in your daily life mm-hmm. um it's it's like a mallet striking a steel cable or something mm. it's a noise where it's like ah that makes sense yeah um but the that noise is is like the one that really strikes out to me and that's that's what comes out when we we get the fountain spray and whatnot um but yeah things uh expand from there and like you said the military comes into the picture very shortly thereafter and uh uh, one of the more dramatic moments in the film is it's kind of like this huge pivot point where we do get to see like American military might unleashed on these spaceships as they come out. There's three of them, by the way. Um, they come out of the meteorite. Um, they refer to the meteorites as cylinders, which is very odd because that that word is used in the script many, many, many times, but we never see a cylinder in the movie. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe it was one of the things where, like, we're going to get the acting done, and they're not, like, we don't know what these are going to, like, we have an idea of how we're going to render this, and maybe they were thinking, like, uh, like tripods or something like that. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, maybe it was just, like, they didn't know what the end product was going to look like, and they just never went back to fix it. I mean, it happens a lot in movies. Yeah. Um, I, I want to say 100% that's exactly what happened, is they, they knew what was in the script, so that's what they went by, and then when it came time to actually put together the special effects, uh, I, guess, I guess we don't know how to do that. <laughs> well, I was thinking, uh, like I was watching Empire Strikes Back last night, and uh, when Luke gets visited by Obi-Wan, he's like, you will go to the Dagobah system. And he goes, Dagobah system? Like, the way he says it is completely different. I'm like, yeah, because these two actors aren't right there in front of each other. So yeah, oh, Millennium Falcon, Millennium Falcon, Obi Wan Kenobi. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're just making this shit up as we go. Yeah, Don't tell anyone. Whatever, George. <laughs> Fuck him. Um, <laughs> Like, it's just so funny, like, like he was still kind of like, I don't think he really even wanted to come back for the second one. I'm like, he, I'm glad, I'm glad that he took such a small, small amount of money to do that first movie, because now, like, imagine the money he could have made if he just would have taken, like, I'll take a percentage of the film, and thinking it wouldn't be that much, but no, no, no. He just wanted to take his little $30,000 to do the movie or whatever. It's like uh, Denise Crosby in Star Trek. Uh, next gen mm. she she wanted out that first season which is rough uh, she wanted out uh, so they had a tar monster like just kill her at random and uh yeah she kept crawling back in the form of cameos for the next like six or seven years which of the hottie <laughs> officers is she the short-haired one uh, yeah, the blonde-haired uh, security officer lady that's only in the first season and cameos later on. I'm with her man I've 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 been chipping away at the next generation for like a year now. Just no, I mean, in the moment, in the moment, like if you only had that first season to go by, I don't blame her for getting uppity. Mm. <laughs> like honestly, that it it was pretty rough in that first year. Um, but yeah, that that was kind of a big fuck up on her part for you know her future career and whatnot. But um, back to War of the Worlds. So yeah. The military shows up in the form of a mixture of stock footage and. Uh, 
rented military equipment. Yeah, I, I'm not crazy about the stock footage. It, it kind of bugs me in this movie. Because uh, it's Kyle? only an 83-minute long movie, and I don't know, stock footage just kind of bugs me sometimes. Unless it's like at the very beginning, like we're setting up a foundation here. We got some stock footage, but it's kind of peppered throughout the film. Well, I, we'll, we'll get back to stock footage, um, but actually you reminded me that the opening of this film is spectacular. Uh, we did not talk about that, and no. we really ought to, because um, the very first thing we get is a narrator. Um, actually, the beginning of this movie is a trailer. It's a, it's a teaser trailer. It is. It's kind of awesome, because like, the very first thing we get is just an on-screen title, World War One, and then a narrator telling us about the world and chaos and like all the military powers of the Earth clashing, and then right away, World War Two, stock footage of World War Two. more shit went down. And then he tells us, the audience, that it's like, oh, you know, those those two world wars, they was rough. But now we're getting ready for the War of the Worlds. <laughs> and then the title flashes on the screen and we get the music. And it's, yeah, it, it's you know, like melodramatic and over the top. But it's it's of its time and it's of its vintage and I love it. And, and we get the full credits at the beginning of the movie. And then we get a series of, there's actually a credit. I forgot to take note of the guy's name, but there's actually a credit devoted to um, astronomical paintings um, because immediately after that introduction to the film um, we get a series of literally astronomical paintings mm-hmm. uh, because these that's the only way we can render this effect in 1953 of the earth and all the planets of the solar system except Venus <laughs> racism <laughs> and uh, yeah he just uh, this narrator explains to us uh, before all the characters in the movie will become aware of it. Like our initial introduction to the story is right off the bat. We're told explicitly Mars is looking at the earth at a great distance. Uh, Their environment has gone to shit. uh, So they're looking for a new place to shack up. Uh, Sound familiar? (laughs) (laughs) And so there he, uh, we, survey all the other planets of the solar system and he gives really obvious mm. reasons as to why these other planets won't do pluto and, too cold <laughs> i mean that's half of them <laughs> like literally it's just half of them jupiter <laughs> too- i think which one's the gaseous is that the one that's just completely made up of gas i can't even i think remember. it was jupiter i yeah. think it was jupiter it's gas giant bunch of gas it's <laughs> <laughs> fucking it stinks it smells bad <laughs> pluto too cold jupiter it stinks. Mercury, too damn hot. Too hot. <laughs> the Earth, just, just right. right. <laughs> and yeah, uh, it's kind of a wonderful introduction because it, it uh, uh, one of the initial shots of these astronomical paintings is is of the Earth. And I want to say the way they did this effect was they created like a, a big backdrop painting of the stars. And then they had a smaller painting of the Earth with some stars around it, and they pushed that painting towards the camera. I think you're right. And it looks really cool. It actually kind of reminded me of the opening of uh, Under the Skin, where it's like an effect that you're like, mm. your brain is trying to figure out how it's done, but you're not quite sure. I'm sure you're doing that. Um, but yeah, uh, I love that we, we get an explicit introduction. Like, there's no mystery. It's like, to us the audience but to all the characters they're they're kept in the dark until a little bit later but us the audience were told right away yeah mars is invading earth um and this was mirrored in the spielberg version except uh they had morgan freeman <laughs> oh, does he narrate that <laughs> yes he does oh man 
He narrated every. Yeah. He narrates everything. So I'm like, I never know. I'm like, am I misremembering? <laughs> I'm due to rewatch that. I think that's going to happen in the next 72 hours. You kind of have to after watching this. Uh, yeah, it put me in the mood for it too. Um, especially since I was like talking it up to somebody the other day, and I was like. Yeah, I might want to revisit that just in case. Two thousands Tom Cruise has been on my mind recently. I've been wanting to rewatch uh, that and Minority Report. Both Spielbergs. Mm, I didn't realize yeah. Spielberg did the Minority Report. Tom yes, Cruise he did. Tom Cruise is great. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking the other day. I'm like, I think you can count on one hand his movies that are not good, like uh, legit, like not good, and there, yeah, there's very few. Yeah, they're they're usually worthwhile in some capacity. Like he he doesn't make straight up bad movies for the most part, except for the he has a few, has a few. Yeah. <laughs> not well, a night, night and day might be up there too. But, yeah. Even that's not horrible if you if you treat it like a date night movie or something. I've heard Cocktail sucks. I haven't watched it. Like Is it doesn't. Where he does the the billiard nunchucks? I don't know, <laughs> man. I know there's one. There's a whorehouse. There's two where he's a lawyer, and then there's. Cocktail, which is he's just making cocktails. <laughs> oh, and Days of Thunder. I, I think. Oh yeah, Days of Thunder is that's the Tony Scott one that I just cannot be bothered to watch, even though it's a Tony Scott movie, and it's a Tom Cruise movie. It's like that should be perfect, and yet I have no interest in it. Maybe because it's a NASCAR movie. I think contemporary Tom Cruise was set off by Jerry Maguire. Like once that movie came out, then it's just all good from there. <laughs> Uh, I haven't bothered to review, but we'll, maybe we'll do a Tom Cruise month or something. Sometime. Well, I think we should. Um, but yeah, uh, long story short, uh, the Martian aircraft come out of, well, spacecraft come out of the gully. There's three of them. They're shaped like manta rays with big bulbous green eyes, and they have these little like, cobra head antennas. And um, like I said, when we first see them emerge, they do have three legs, um, like three anti-gravitational beams or whatever uh, but we can't be bothered to do that because apparently it was like literally dangerous to do that like it would have started a fire or something yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, be mindful of how the effects had to be done back then but um, I really love this sequence where this is where the priest eats it he eats shit here where he uh, emerges from the tent and like just walks up to them pretty plainly and tries to speak with them and they just annihilate him um, but immediately after that, uh, the American military unleash hell on these three spacecraft, and uh, we get this really neat effect of their force fields. Where uh, actually, it's not neat. It looks kind of silly. It looks like <laughs> it looks like imagine like a glass uh, case that you'd put over a cake, <laughs> except you put it over a spacecraft. <laughs> yeah, and I guess they I guess they uh, they uh, superimposed it. Um, like, yeah, I can see that. They dialed they dialed back like the opacity of it or whatever, and uh, it's a pretty. It was probably very complicated for the time, um, but these days it looks you know pretty elementary and kind of silly. But uh, the point is, we can't touch them. Like regardless of how hard we hit them, uh, nothing hurts them. Like nothing even touches them. And uh, this is where they, we get like several minutes of these three spacecraft just like spewing laser beams <laughs> at everything. And uh, we get this disintegration effect where it's kind of similar to, like, the Star Trek, like, transporter effect. Mm -hmm. um, but they do go to great lengths to, like, show, um, like, a, a, a shadow stained on the ground where the people once were. 
it's, uh, it's kind of chilling when you think about it because mm-hmm. remember this is the atomic age and there's literal ev- physical evidence of this having happened to people after nuclear explosions uh, in the form of I think it's Hiroshima where they have the person's shadow still on the ground uh, that's fucked up by the way <laughs> so I'm just I'm still thinking about I'm, I'm hung up on like the um, like the Americanisms in this and like like how big of a role religion plays in this and honestly, the more I think about it, I think the director is kind of not anti-religious, but I feel like he's throwing it to the wayside because we're explicitly killing a priest in this movie, which doesn't like it. Not at the time, this is not something you you would do, and it would be very controversial. Um, but yeah, uh, I was reading up on the director a little bit. He graduated from Berkeley. He's from Portland, Oregon originally, and he actually did the special effects for the Seahawk, uh, Errol Flynn. Uh, so he's definitely worked with Flynn. Um, but I, I'm still kind of hung up because especially this scene. It I mean, if you think about it, like allegory, it's like, yeah, there's other stuff out there. So th- if we do if we do discover this, religion is out. Like the you your explanation is no longer valid. And if if you think about it from that context, I think there's something there. Yeah, I I don't have the uh, mm, I don't have the background. To, to argue a point either way unfortunately yeah. um, I don't have much I'm background just speculating with, I know but like I'm, I'm gonna try to walk with you here because um, <clears throat> it, it does feel like multiple angles are being played here because um, I mean the, the concept of heaven being it's usually regarded as being above humanity and whatnot if we go beyond that to the stars though like you said that kind of that doesn't jive with that that line of thinking Mm -hmm. and in 1953 where uh, in this movie it's actually kind of funny as soon as the spacecraft emerge um without hesitation there's speculation are they from mars (laughs) it's like even the even the learned scientist in the room is like maybe probably yeah (laughs) so this is where we were at with science at the time apparently (laughs) um but um yeah it it is kind of interesting though because we we do revisit uh, this religious material several times, especially towards the end of the film. Um, but they never really take too strong of a stance with it until the closing moments of it. Mm-hmm. Like it is kind, it is almost kind of like they're trying to placate a portion of the audience, where it's like, by the time you get to the end, it's like, oh, well, you know, yeah, like your your beliefs or your line of thinking. We do support that, but at the same time fucking martian yeah (laughs) you have to acknowledge like it's like you have to acknowledge that there is science like yeah um yeah sorry yeah there no it's fine um the initial attack does not go well no um and this is where i believe uh our doctor hero and his lady his his lady friend um they escape and he crashes his plane yeah i don't understand this it, it's it's really strange he's like yeah i have a plane he mentions it in passing like he's like i have a plane that that's how i got up here and then it, it's almost as like the the edit like the way it jumps is just very strange like they get to the plane and then they're like are there uh military crafts coming in and then also the aliens are there and then something happens and they end up crashing the plane yeah i maybe i was dicking around on my phone or something but i it's very I th- it's it's strange I mean, one of the early stages of the crisis before people are even dying is that, uh, well, right when they start dying, is that the aliens have the power to um, disrupt our communications. So radio 
phones yeah uh for some reason the magnetic poles yeah <laughs> and uh watches and compasses no longer function um but it kind of comes to nothing though maybe that's how the plane crashed or something perhaps like maybe maybe they disrupted the instruments of his plane um but this is also like when they crash and they t- they take shelter in a in a ditch um that aliens kind of miss them um but I think it's at this point that we have a fade to black and we pull the lens all the way back and we get a montage of all the Martians like traipsing across the entire globe. Mm -hmm. And this is where a stock footage comes into play uh, because this almost this entire montage, all the public hysteria and even like the destruction of some buildings and whatnot. And of course, all the military action, like all the movement of vehicles and like deploying of munitions and whatnot it's all done through stock footage of world war ii and other wars prior my problem with this is that i wish they would have had the the ships like shooting at stuff and then you see like just explosion in front of a building and the smoke goes up or you see a lady screaming like just make it a little more menacing and relate it to what's happening in the film pulling the stock footage does it just doesn't um i i can i realize it just doesn't relate when i'm watching the film well, they they superimpose like the the antenna beams and whatnot shooting over the stock footage. So you, there's very little like explicit scenes of destruction and whatnot. But you you get the sound cues, you get to yeah. see the laser beams, and the narrator hammers home the point that like people all over the planet are being displaced. Every every military is joining forces to try to fight back, and people are being pushed into the hills and removed from the cities. And uh, it's a losing battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is all happening over the course of hours. Like, it's all happening at once. Um, but it's kind of a stunning montage. And the, their narration, the script is very, very strong. Like, it, it's pretty heavy. Like, mm-hmm. he's, he's talking about end of the world type shit. And I, this scenes of explicit destruction, stuff like this, and like entire masses of humanity being displaced. It's. N- outside of like biblical pictures and stuff like the 10 commandments and whatnot you probably didn't get this very often in in movies of this nature Mm -hmm. especially b movies because like you know sci-fi and stuff like i said usually it was of a smaller scale where it's like yeah you might have a giant monster or something but it's attacking a small town yeah like like in tarantula or something it's like oh it's it's slowly marching down the highway yeah, yeah, it'll get here eventually. <laughs> I think that's what I, I like about the remake is we do a little bit more of like watching society crumble and it's like an actual problem they have to deal with. And it didn't necessarily have to be a problem in this film, like having to deal with civil unrest, which they do deal with nor- towards the end. I just think yeah. the middle would have been a little bit better if we could see a little bit more of the scale of the destruction as opposed to just kind of imagining. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's where the, the budget comes into play because yeah. I unfortunately don't know how far two million dollars would take you in 1953 it's um, like 19 million dollars into by today's standards which isn't a huge budget but no that that's modest that yeah. that's a blumhouse movie <laughs> <laughs> um so that i guess that was a modest budget and that's where that comes into play wwe production <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a house show Spare, not even a pay-per-view <laughs> every expense <laughs> um yeah, that's where the budget comes into play because stock footage is relatively cheap. Yeah. I mean, for fuck's sake, Ed Wood made liberal use of stock footage, um, <laughs> often without explanation. Uh, herds of buffalo and Bea Lugosi, they go together. Sure, why not? Yeah, why not? <laughs> everything we got. Everything we got. That's that's, <laughs> that's the core conceit of his filmmaking. But, um, yeah, stock footage uh, is cheap. 
And not only that, um, this movie is guilty of uh, quite a bit of telling without showing. Um, the first evidence of it I've really noticed here was in the form of not this montage, but the fact that um, the ground assault of the military is shown in full explicit detail. Uh, but then at the conclusion of it, as the major general is retreating, um, he says the air f it's up to the Air Force now, and we do get stock footage of a, like a whole fighter wing of, of jets flying in. Which I understand and, and, that. Yeah. And then nothing. Yeah. Everything that happens with those jets is relayed to us in dialogue after the fact. So we don't see anything that happened there. We are told all the jets disappeared, um, presumably via disintegration rays. Which, by the way, I love that the conclusion of that ground attack scene, um, it reminded me of like Tim Burton's Mars Attacks, which, mm. of course, is paying homage to this film. Um, the uh like the army ground commander is like he's kicking he's kicking everyone out of the tent he's like get the fuck out of here except without the f-bomb because 1953 yeah um and he stands center frame and he gets struck in the chest with a green beam and he goes <laughs> and he turns into a skeleton <laughs> i feel like i want to revisit that one i know it's not a great movie but i i kind of want to go back and just rewatch it i've been uh preparing for a uh a uh episode of tales from the shelf with uh, brad from the cinema speak podcast i've been preparing for one uh, specifically about uh musical scores for films mm. um and as a result i've been listening to a lot of danny elfman and john williams and all the like james Brian, Horner, you know. actually uh not so much <laughs> he's he's a little uh too ambient from my tastes i was gonna say it's, he does the opening score to that dune movie uh, the David Lynch movie, which I he's he's very good composer. It's just a little I like more uppity shit. Gotcha. Um, and uh, his choral tracks for that movie, mm, the you know what I'm talking about yeah. when they're riding the fucking worms. Yeah. It's yeah. it's a little it's a little much. Um, but he's not he's a very good composer though. But um, point is I've been listening to a lot of like Danny Elfman and stuff lately and. Uh, yeah, some of his tracks for Mars Attacks are delightful. Um, <laughs> absolutely delightful. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like I said, the budget kind of rears its ugly head here, where uh, immediately following the ground assault, uh, we never see what happened to those jets, but we do get this big meeting between the Major General and, like, all the other military personnel and whatnot, and he's just explaining to us everything that happened. So he's just he's just telling us all the things that are happening around the globe, um, but we probably didn't have the money to actually show any, any of it in detail, um, which isn't a bad thing, especially because, like I said, this this guy, Les Tremaine, um, he has that ability to just dump exposition and do it convincingly. Mm -hmm. So he was very well cast in this role. Um, but yeah, I think at this point we, we cut back to the Doctor and we get kind of a similar scene to a... Mm, I guess the Tim Robbins house in uh, the remake, where it's it's a suspenseful scene as opposed to like a, a rip roaring action sequence where it's our two lead characters stuck in a house. Yeah, um, yeah. The, uh, the 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 Tim Robbins one is like that scene is good. Like it is good. It's just a little too long. Like we we spend too much time with them. But yeah, here this is this is a funny kind of scene. Uh, we they're they're in the house and they're like there's uh, one of those things is out there. And we see the the spaceship sh like uh, this little cord comes out basically, and uh, we see uh, how did you describe it the um, the camera thing? I think it looks like what? 
like a, a it looks like a mystery science theater 3000 yeah, robot exactly that's what i was thinking <laughs> or like some kind of british vacuum cleaner from the 60s or something very <laughs> much so i mean that's exactly what it is but it has three colored lenses on the head of it and this thing is going through the house like kind of just peering into the house and they're not hiding very well by the way behind uh, <laughs> some rubble and they're just looking at it. it's like he's looking for us and to test it, he, like, throws a rock to, to see what happens, which is kind of funny. Science, bitch. Um, but something happens, and it get uh, it, uh, they end up chopping its little head off uh, or whatever. Um, and then I do like how this is presented. Uh, like, they end up uh, saving that the head of uh, the camera, but the alien's about to come into that to the house. And it, I think it's brought in really well, but you did not need to see these aliens. <laughs> It's a no, little they, 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 the, the arms, the hands, they look fantastic. Yeah. The rest of it, oh yeah, not so much. It, um, it, yeah, <laughs> it makes this movie go from a an A movie to this is more like okay, we're in B territory now. We we crossed over. I mean, this this is also where the Blu-ray doesn't do it any favors. No. Where it's like okay, a little too much light, like maybe dim it a little bit. But yeah, we do get to see it just for a couple seconds. Um, and yeah, it's a little red critter with uh long arms and like kind of suction cup fingers and uh he's got uh three colored eyes in the center of his head and it i think it's supposed to be a single eye with three lenses mm-hmm. um and he's covered in veins which actually is a really cool effect at the very end of the movie mm-hmm. they, like the arm like they actually built veins in the arm that pump and it's like wow that looks cool it does look really cool at the end yeah, um, it's probably just surgical tubing with air pumping through it, like on a foot pump, <laughs> and some guy smoking just off camera going, <laughs> but, you know, it works. Um, but yeah, it, like, touches her arm for some reason, and then they shine a light on it, and it goes, ah! <laughs> and it runs off. No, I think they throw something at it, and it causes it to bleed a little bit, and uh, long story short, they do escape from the house, but not before... Uh, we have a 1950s woman moment where she breaks out into hysterics. hysterics. Yeah, he has to shake a bitch because <laughs> that, that was the only solution in the 50s. Is one scientist gonna have to shake a bitch? Yeah, <laughs> just yeah. get all of yourself, woman. <laughs> Honestly, that's exactly the scene. It's it's a very familiar trope of movies of this vintage. I think his hair and, comes out of like uh, th- that was always something like that. The guy's hair always looked perfect. And uh, and you could tell he was getting very frustrated when the hair would get a little messed up. This is where a lock would be hanging over the eyebrow kind of deal. Yeah, I'm just picturing him storming off to his uh, to his trailer with with the the napkin tucked into mm-hmm. his collar <laughs> because this man spent a lot of time in makeup. I can tell you that much. And this man also had a tanning bed at home. I yes, that much yes. as well. Yes, um, eating a yeah. sandwich while smoking a cigarette. Apparently, that was a thing. <laughs> Um, but yeah, he, he tells her to get a hold of herself, and uh, they take off with some Martian blood and a Martian gadget with, like, lenses on it. Yeah. None of this will be important. Uh, <laughs> this reminded me of uh, a little bit of Wild Wild West. I don't know if you remember where they chopped the guy's head off, and they That pro- <laughs> is a man's head. <laughs> they project light through his eyes, and it's like the last image. It's like a photograph. The last thing he saw, and it's Buffalo Bill holding the big jagged saw thing, and then, like, even as a kid, I'm like, that's fucking weird. 
and, the, and and they went so far as to like add the extra layer of detail where they have to turn it upside down put glasses on it yeah, yeah. and put glasses on it that is a very strange movie it is i had the sunglasses from burger king the promotional sunglasses that oh, they had the will smith sunglasses uh-huh yeah definitely wow. had those. the tiny lens ones yeah, yeah. i haven't yeah, been to burger king since the 90s i don't think i think i've been to burger king you could count on one hand the mm-hmm. number of times i've been there dairy queen I have been there exactly once. Wow, did you get a blizzard when you went there? No. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and I remember they had, for the kids' meal, they had um, rockadoodle toys. What's rockadoodle? <laughs> rockadoodle is a Don Bluth animated toy. Oh, I think I had one of those toys. Yeah, I don't know what what 1990 year that was, but I remember I got one of those. They had curly fries or something, and the ketchup was almost purple. Which is not good. That's not how ketchup should look. <laughs> but that was literally the only time I've been to a Dairy Queen. Um, but yeah, our heroes, they, uh, they escape. And uh, I guess at this point, um, the plan is to investigate the uh, materials that they brought. Um, they head to his university. And he has a science team, of an international science team. There's like a, a French lady and like a German dude. And... Um, they do some investigating. Uh, they learn some stuff about how Martians see. Um, there's some misogyny in the form of a German scientist, like asking the woman to step closer to the lens. He's like, "Let's see why the Martians liked you." <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, she stares awkwardly into the lens for a very long time. I don't know if this was considered a special effect, just because they put a fisheye lens on it or something. Probably. It's, it's entirely pointless, but the one the one important detail we learn here is that the French scientist lady tells us that uh, based on her examination of the Martian blood, um, their physical constitution is less than that of a human. Mm-hmm. They're, they're brilliant, but flimsy. Like, they're fragile. Put a pin in that. Put a pin in that. Um, and then we get a scene that was directly aped um, in Independence Day. Um, which is a movie that I'm surprised I have we haven't mentioned up until now, hmm. um, because Independence Day bears a very strong resemblance to this story. Um, Independence Day is a fantastic film, if you ask me. I find it very enjoyable. It's been um, a long time since I've wart- watched it. Uh. I find it very watchable. It's very it's it, warts and all. I still enjoy it, maybe because of when it came out and the hype train surrounding it. But um, yeah, uh, we get a scene where, like I said, this is in Independence Day. They did directly homage this, as far as I know. Back where, when Will Smith was still fun. <laughs> yeah, not so goddamn serious. God, dude, you can't even do a reunion with the Fresh Prince cast without making it fucking serious. <laughs> dude, just can you be funny again sometimes? <laughs> Jeez. Um, but this is where we, we drop a nuclear bomb on the alien spacecraft. Um, so we, we have like a war room meeting with like all the American generals. By the way, um, this is an Americanism. Uh, for some reason, all the, all the governments of the world are thrown into chaos and most of the capitals are utterly flattened. Paris is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, India is like, they're, apparently they're holding their congressional meetings on a train yeah (laughs) um which you know that i wouldn't be surprised if having a mobile headquarters was a good idea at this point um but the americanism creeps in in the form of washington dc is untouched Mm. completely fine of course from a strategic standpoint if you had the capabilities that these martians had it's like okay you've you've been observing the entire planet at a distance for how long 
it didn't occur to you that the strongest military superpower on the planet wouldn't be the first yeah. fucking one to take out? <laughs> I mean, we we put a lot of money into our military, so I think you'd probably want to take us out. <laughs> uh, honestly, like, yeah, we have a shot of, it's like the congressional building. It's like untouched. Like all of Washington, D.C., it's fine. <laughs> also, it's kind of like a wink to the audience. Remember those two world wars? Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> we, we got this. <laughs> we got this. Don't worry. They can't touch us. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we have this meeting where it's actually kind of a neat sequence where, again, this is telling, not showing, but the Major General draws on a chalkboard and shows the movement pattern of the Martian spacecraft. I don't know why and I really like that. Yeah, I really liked him drawing that. I really liked that. It was kind of cool. Um, you know, it demonstrated an, an element of, like, world building that didn't need to be there, but I appreciate it. Well, just think about, like, you go through, like, people go through trades, people go to college, and then people go to higher education to go into the profession. But then you think about people in these positions, like military generals, like, their college is, mil- like, like war strategy and stuff like that. And it's crazy that that's their college. Like, that's what their 101 classes were. It was, like... Uh, setting up setting up these kinds of plans and understanding what the enemy is doing it's just it, it's crazy to think that that's the knowledge that they have yeah uh it, i find that stuff very very fascinating um strategy in general mm-hmm. is is a concept that eludes me personally even though i'm fascinated in it um tactics and stuff like that are more digestible to your average person but there's a reason like you know like even like football coaches and stuff there's mm-hmm. a reason why some of them are held in high regard it's because they can look they can look at those x's and o's and make sense of it all like when it's just removing, gibberish to you and i yeah to me it's all just gibberish but for them it's like no all of this is it's an equation that adds up to something mm-hmm. to, to a result that i want to happen whatever the cost packers fans and cowboys fans will get this mike mccarthy doesn't have that ability sorry Oh, oh. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, this is where I believe the American president decides. Yeah, let's drop a nuke on him. Yeah, <laughs> very casually. He's like, yeah. Sure. That is the that is generally the answer. Uh, Post atom bomb in movies, what do we do when we have something that we can't figure out? Fucking blow it up. Well, I just I think it's funny because for whatever reason I've been in a, a nuclear mood, or a nuclear <laughs> mood lately. Um, I I watched uh, well. I was building a model kit at the time. So I wasn't really <laughs> watching it, but I, I put on The Sum of All Fears, which I haven't seen since it came out. Tommy Lee Jones and, court drama? No, it's a Ben, ben Affleck. That's Rules and, of Engagement. That's right. Yeah, I, I saw that one like a year ago as well. Hmm. Um, I don't, for some reason, courtrooms and just men in suits yelling at each other has been on my mind. Hmm. Um, maybe because of politics and yeah, whatnot lately. It, but, it, it's relevant. <laughs> um, but The Sum of All Fears is about the detonation of a nuclear device in Maryland. Hmm. Um, and uh, not only that, I followed that up with Crimson Fucking Tide, which I love that movie. I don't know if I've seen that one. You haven't seen Well, you don't like Denzel, so that might be... I, I, yeah, I, that's strong. <laughs> I'm just not a, I'm not a, Den, I'm not a huge Denzel fan. I don't he's dislike... Not, he's, not a, he's not a selling He's not a selling point for me. Don't, I don't put it out there that I don't like Denzel. I'm just yeah, saying he's, okay. not, he's not an important actor for me. Yeah, it's him and uh, uh, Gene Hackman. Mm. In the 90s. Gene Hackman being a sour bitch. I, I really like Gene Hackman. I'm I love Gene Hackman. I'm really <laughs> realizing that as I get older. I'm like, I really like Gene Hackman. No, I love Gene Hackman. And uh, that movie, damn, I forgot how much I love that movie. And uh, uh, fun fact, apparently for a long time, I don't know if it's still true, but Hans Zimmer's favorite score. Hmm. 
did. that he composed. And Hans Zimmer does which movies? All of the movies. I know he does. I know he does all of them. But can you just name rattle off just top three, like just the Dark Knight trilogy? Okay, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> but basically, all the movies. I was just saying, like he he's done so much. It's like like Gladiator. It's like John. Uh, like I know Broken Arrow. I like I know John Williams. I'm like Hans Zimmer. He's done so much. I'm like I just can't think of which movie in particular. Yeah, but um, the point I was trying to get to though was that uh, in those movies, the idea of deploying a nuclear device is considered like it it takes two hours Mm -hmm. of the movie for us to actually get to the point where we're actually talking about it for real in this one though it's just like you the guy watches a a a man draw some shit on a chalkboard and he's like yeah okay i'm convinced (laughs) well let's be honest trevor that's about how it was used the first time it was like well we've got this thing we don't really know like what kind of like lasting damage it's gonna do but it's gonna have quite a bit of destruction fuck it let's just do it yeah i mean you're you are right though it it's it's a sign of the time especially in 1953 where we weren't privy to the we the public especially weren't privy to the the details that we are now Mm -hmm. where it's like it's kind of understood now that like if you use the word football like in in military terms it's like yeah we usually know what that means and most people have the stereotypical idea of the two the two keys turning in Mm -hmm. their mind in 1953 and in 1945 i don't think any keys were involved (laughs) there was a hundred percent no keys involved in 1945 Yeah, it was, a plane. it was more like, is it done? Well, get it out of here. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't want that thing in my rec room. <laughs> <laughs> you just hear somebody light a cigarette, and then you hear a gunshot. Like, no smoking. <laughs> they just shot that guy in the head. <laughs> Treat it like a fucking gas pump. <laughs> not, it's it's not even like a, a like a a killing weapon. It's a shotgun with with like salt loaded in it. Like. Get that out of here! Did you get? Did <laughs> Put you, that shit out! Did you get to the Archer episode where he, they're on the big uh, dirigible, uh, like the big he, uh, the no, the I have blue, not. Oh my god, he thinks it's full of helium. <laughs> and he, oh like, no! People keep firing. I was like, Lana, Jesus, the helium! And they're like, for the last time, it's not helium. It's safe to use. <laughs> it's just really funny. It's a good Thank episode. Fucking lord. <laughs> um. But yeah, uh, we casually drop a nuclear bomb. Actually, the decision to use it is casual. Um, but the actual carrying out of of the detonation is treated like a big fucking deal. It's kind yeah. of a cool moment in the movie. Um, because uh, we didn't talk about but the earlier in the movie, like when the aliens first emerge, um, we have a guy doing a radio broadcast at mm-hmm. the site with the military. And we have this montage that's actually kind of neat of people all over the world um, listening to the radio broadcast and it it just goes to show the immediacy of the events unfolding that's it's all just like speculation it's Mm -hmm. all just science talking heads just like throwing whatever the fuck out there and hoping it sticks um and we get a reprise of that in the form of a guy talking on a reel-to-reel recorder again with the military it's a different guy by the way i don't know if the other guy's alive um but he's talking on a reel-to-reel device because radio communication is dead um so he's recording this like in the hopes that somebody will listen to it later on but he's just talking us through like oh the military is planning to detonate an atomic device um we're here watching uh there's some other people watching and all all of humanity's fate hinges on this moment 
Um, so the movie kind of takes a breather and re- just emphasizes the point that what we're about to see is really fucking important, uh, such that all of our, our hero characters gather at this site once again. They stop examining the Martian equipment just to, to go witness this event. And mm-hmm. we see like people like shacked up in the hills just like casually observing. Not a good idea. Yeah, I thought that was really strange that you have all these observers like mm. watching the nuclear stuff. Like, guys, you know what's going to happen? Like. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I th- I think actually I have an uncle that uh, was at the Bikini Atoll test, and uh, he developed some health problems as a result <laughs> of that. <laughs> like, he was in the Navy, and he witnessed it, and was like, oh, it, that was probably at a great distance, too. And sh- Nuclear shit's scary, man. <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, the detonation is, is done with special effects, not stock footage, which is kind of surprising, actually, um, because we didn't have the equipment to to actually render such an event with special effects at the time mm-hmm. it just i don't think it was possible well, actually one of the best examples i've ever seen is a uh, behind the scenes of uh, toho and uh, tsuburaya uh special effects uh, so the folks that did godzilla movies and ultraman and stuff back in the day um it was a uh, contemporary special effects test where they reproduced and ex- it's a volcanic explosion um, they did it for like a British documentary just to show how they did it back in the day. It was so cool. They shoot it's a it's a pool of water, like a water tank, and uh, they shoot it upside down. So the camera's flipped upside down. And so it's an underwater volcano spewing out of the ocean. And the way they did it was they had a mixed bucket of paint that they poured into the water. So what you're actually watching is a cloud of paint going down into Mm. a pool of water but the image is flipped in such a way that what you're thinking is the sky is actually underwater so this billowing cloud effect that you get from like a mushroom cloud it was rendered with just like a series of layered paints it was so cool like it it was very convincing it's one of the best renderings of that event i've ever seen with that kind of technology but i'm used to this is where i'm used to seeing stock footage Mm -hmm. in these movies like uh Rodan uh, actually opens with uh, one of the more famous nuclear detonations. It's the one, um, it's a Navy bomb test where they have a whole bunch of dummy uh, ships mm-hmm. like encircling it, and it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And I remember seeing that when I was a kid and just being like, I don't even know what I'm looking at anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, this is terrifying. <laughs> Where, where's the pterodactyl <laughs> to come down? <laughs> but, but, uh, Long story short, they they set off the bomb with a flying wing, which is also rendered with stock footage. <laughs> and uh, it doesn't do shit. It doesn't do anything. <laughs> it doesn't do shit, uh, which causes the populace to erupt into hysterics. Uh, mass evacuations of, of the West Coast happen. And uh, like you had mentioned, they do a pretty good job with this, where they show that pe- it's not a peaceful evacuation. No. It's pretty, it's pretty nasty. And I feel like we're. it definitely looks like... Uh uh this is paramount i believe that did this is correct that, i think yeah it, it it's the lots basically but it looks really good and uh it, it's very believable um i do like uh like what's in the back of this truck that he ends up taking uh, so he he our our hero uh dr forrester he heads back to the lab with his gal pal and all the scientists and uh they decide that they're like he comes up with a plan right quick yeah. <laughs> like, like he's like we're gonna head off into the rocky mountains like sure okay uh 
yeah, okay, science man. And it's gonna uh, get cold. the idea is he, he wants to load up all their science equipment. <laughs> uh, so the truck is loaded with instruments and whatnot, um, which gets promptly hijacked um, by looters and people trying to escape, basically. Mm. And uh, it's actually kind of neat. Like, he gets his ass beat. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, up until this point, like, he's portrayed as being, like, the manly man that can handle anything that's thrown this way. But um, when there's a crowd of 100 people trying to get your truck, uh, he gets thrown out to the street and gets the shit kicked out of him. <laughs> Which definitely happens in that re- uh, in the... Steven Spielberg, uh, War, War of the Worlds, which is yeah. kind of a scary... It, it's kind of scary. Like, you feel like you're safe in your car, and they're like, uh-uh. <laughs> just plow through oh. these people, dude. Just remember to keep a spare solenoid handy, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the key oh, for surviving the apocalypse. All the cars are broken down, that's why. Yeah. But Tom Cruise knows his way around a solenoid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a running gag, well, in the first half, anyway, of one of those scary movie movies. Mm. I do. It's like it's the solenoid. <laughs> the, the I think it's the third one where they're making fun of uh, War of the Worlds. Maybe the fourth one where he's gonna like the kid's gonna like jo- join off and help the military guys, and he's like, "No, wait!" And he's like, "Dad, come on! They'll pay for my college." <laughs> really fucking funny. Yeah, no. Some of those movies are kind of funny. First two are still uh, funny. I'll stand by yeah. that. Yeah, some parts of them probably don't hold up, and probably are actually like. A little dated. If you um, give the Wayne's <laughs> brothers a hard R, you're gonna have you're gonna have a good time. You're gonna have a good time, but you're also gonna have some stuff that's of its time. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, my buddy and I have been going back and forth with "Don't be a menace to society." Uh, the Wayne's brothers ones. Uh, <laughs> we're going back with some gifts from that. It's still pretty funny. <laughs> you know, I never actually saw it, oh. but it had a really it had a big reputation among like my brother and his friends, it, so, like a little bit older than me. It might be their best one. It might be their best movie, unfortunately, and it's their I think it's their first one. It's it's still really funny. Okay, well, I I should probably check it out just to see the time capsule of my youth. It's you know? worth your time. Yeah, but um, this begins the final act of the movie where uh, the aliens are just marching into town. Mm-hmm. I think this is is this uh, San Francisco or Los Angeles? Oh, Los Angeles. Los Angeles, yeah. Um, and like you said, it does look like a back lot, but it reminded me of uh, the Omega Man. Um, have you seen that one? Mm-mm. It's a. Uh, it's based on the same book. It's based on I Am Legend. Um, okay. But it was a Charlton Heston movie from back in the day. Mm. Um, it's been remade a couple of times, not just the Will Smith one. But um, the Charlton Heston one, famously, they shot all of the empty city sequences um, in San Francisco. And apparently the way they did it was it they just filmed really early on Sunday. Hmm, <laughs> and apparently at that time, San Francisco was just dead. I'm kind of curious how Danny Boyle did it in uh, thirty or twenty-eight days later, because you get that uh, Siren, uh, what's his name? I can't think. Oh, Cillian Murphy. There we go. There we go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Him going through like downtown London, and it's like it's completely like completely empty, which is I thought was pretty good. Um, but no, it's it's hard to watch a Charlton Heston movie uh, before nineteen seventy because any movie with Charlton Heston before nineteen seventy is like four fucking hours long. Like it's an investment. Yeah, the Omega Man is. I I think it's like 1970 on the nose. Um, it's it's not a fantastic movie. Um, the ending's kind of cool, but um, that's about it. I um, wanted to watch Ben Hur for a long time. It's three. It's like three hours and forty minutes long. I think. I believe it. Jesus. Um, that's as far as I remember. That's like one of the most remade movies in film history. Uh, I would believe so. That and um, uh, Wuthering Heights. 
<laughs> uh, you and your weathering heights. Three hours and 32 fucking minutes. Dude. God damn. Uh, but uh, the final act of this movie is essentially uh, Dr. Forrester looking for his gal pal Sylvia, um, who I guess he has an attachment to. They've been together through most of the movie, but it's just this long sequence of the Martians blowing up Los Angeles, rendered in wonderful miniature work, uh, spectacular miniature work, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and him just kind of like flopping along the street. He doesn't have a, <laughs> he doesn't have a good run. We forgot. I forgot to mention controlled running. Uh, is something that I like to. I notice in movies. I I watched uh, Empire Strikes Back, and I noticed Lando Calrissian doing some controlled running around the corner. But there's a lot of controlled running in this movie. There's a couple of instances where it's pretty good. Him going down the streets, it's a bit it's a bit obnoxious. Yeah, so folks at home, what Kyle is referring to when he says controlled running is you know you know that you know the body language you assume when you're you're like running but you're trying to run like at the just the right pace, like to keep up with people or to like keep from losing people and it just never looks right. Like uh famously no probably not famously but i made a gif for Mm -hmm. kyle a long time ago when we reviewed the film chain reaction um because there's a sequence where brian cox runs across the frame and he is doing the windmill arm things Mm. and he's an old man already and it just it looks terrible he probably puked after that (laughs) i'm sure he did he's not built for speed i'm Um, trying to think morgan freeman on the other hand he's just kind of like bopping along he look he looks like he should have been doing that all the time but in general, Morgan Freeman, like, he moves at the pace of Michael Myers. Like, Morgan Freeman never runs. He, like, it's very odd to see him in motion like that. Stand and Deliver, I believe, is the movie where he plays the high school principal. He, it, it's a different Morgan Freeman performance altogether. It is, is very, anime, like, he's very high energy in that. And I don't know if he does any running, but he definitely gets physical. But I'm saying, good running, like, where you could, like, when you're, when you're in a panicking, like a like a high stress situation where you need to run, Han Solo running in Episode Four when he's running around the corner screaming at the stormtroopers, that's where you're like, oh no no, Harrison Ford was legit running there. Uh, oh no, he he was he was doing the T1000 shit where it's like if you put a wall in front of him, I don't know if that that wall was not going to stop him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, like he's not doing knife arms because he's got a gun in his arms, but you know he is throwing those shoulders back and forth mm-hmm. he's he's, he's, he's imagining himself headed for the end zone man yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah this uh this gene barry i'm sorry mr barry you, you do not have a graceful run and i know he's supposed to be banged up at this point but yeah he's just kind of like literally flopping down the street yeah and uh the repetition of the sequence is almost comical because he's he's trying to find his lady sylvia and he goes to three different churches yeah three of them and like Wayne's World he... too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, nice reference. Um, but he uh, he just kind of pops his head in all these churches, and when he doesn't find his lady, he he heads back out into the street, and the Martians are still there. Cassandra, I forgot about that. <laughs> just banging on the window. Cassandra. Cassandra. <laughs> I'm picturing yeah, him doing that. Yeah, sorry. Just insert Sylvia. Um, yeah um but yeah he he takes he takes a visit to three different churches and uh, he's disappointed the first two times and you know um generally there's a law of threes where if you do mm. something more than three times you're gonna piss someone off yeah <laughs> it's like jeez oh, god damn <laughs> like, like what are we doing what are you doing wasting my time um but yeah he gets to the third one and uh he does reunite with sylvia and we do get this really cool moment 
uh, where the marsh, like everybody's praying and whatnot. And uh, along the way, he did meet like some of the other doctors, and they keep like trying to to give him like little breadcrumbs as to where to head next. Um, but at the third church, he reunites with her, and the Martians are closing in, and they strike the church, and like the plaster on the ceiling is coming down, and people are taking cover. Meanwhile, our two, our hero and our heroine, they embrace, and they're just standing amongst the pews. And the camera zooms in, and it's all very dramatic. And then we cut to some drunk aliens yeah. uh, crashing the spacecraft. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was watching this. I'm like, wait, what the fuck happened? There's a movie where bir- do birds are the birds the reason that the aliens are brought down in the remake, the Steven Spielberg one? Or maybe I'm, there's a, a movie where birds play a huge part, and I can't remember which sci-fi movie it is. Uh, maybe it's the birds no 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 it's it's, a, it's <laughs> more of a contemporary film where the problem was birds i, I was thinking it was the, the the world of the worlds like they were passing off some disease or something i'm not entirely sure i i don't think that was in the remake i could be wrong but i i want to say the resolution of the remake is identical could be um, at godzilla 1984 the birds were how they defeated him <laughs> <laughs> i but yeah, uh, there are no birds in this one. Um, basically, uh, this this is probably known to most people listening to this, even if you haven't seen the movie, because this is kind of baked into pop culture. But um, yeah, the alien spacecraft start crashing just on their own, and they just kind of crash into the streets. And all of our all of our heroes, we uh, head out into the street to examine them. And one of the hatches of one of the manta ray shaped spaceships uh, opens up, and not the whole alien, just the good part of the alien, the arm, falls out of the hatch and we get this cool effect where it's like kind of like lazily clawing around mm-hmm. and uh, the veins on its arms are pulsing though, and it looks really cool. It's a, such a small detail that you really didn't even need to put it in there. It wouldn't have made a difference, but I appreciate it. Um, and Science Man, who has all had all the answers up to this point, uh, he just kind of like puts his hand on the alien's wrist and he's like, it's dead. It's like, How do you know that? <laughs> Science man. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I did like that. He doesn't explain to the audience. He doesn't explain to all the, the people around him what's going on. Yeah. Uh, the narrator yeah. handles that. Thing. It was a bacteria. They didn't have a good immune system. We are used to this bacteria. Now we're not dying from it. <laughs> Yeah, um, and this is where the religious stuff really, really yeah. comes to the fore. Because <laughs> I, I think Science Man does remark that like we were all praying for this, as in a miracle. Um, and I'll just directly quote the narrator: um, "No resistance to the bacteria in our atmosphere, to which we have long since become immune." That is, of course, him referring to the Martians uh, having no resistance. And after all that men could do had failed, the Martians were destroyed and humanity was saved by the littlest things, which God in his wisdom had put upon this earth. Mm -hmm. Pretty heavy handed. Yeah. And the the closing shot of the film is of a church and bells ringing. Um, So, (laughs) yeah. So, um, it's kind of interesting though, because it's, it is really heavy handed there, but at the same time, it, it, parts of the film do feel kind of secular do you do you think this was a mega happy ending like they uh they may maybe the director had a different thought for the end of it and the studio's like no 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 uh we need to have a, a bit of a different ending there uh this was the ending from the text 
Um, and there's a reason why the ending's also used in the Spielberg one. Mm. Well, although Spielberg is often accused for having mega happy endings, um, often. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I don't know. He kills the fuck out of Rufio. Like he stabs a teenager in the heart, which is pretty. That was pretty devastating when I was a kid. So I guess it, all of us, man, whew. we all felt that one. <laughs> that, that one hurt. Rufio. Looky, looky, I got hooky. He was oh man, so cocky. <laughs> uh, Dante Bosco's voice never changed, by the way. Oh, I know. I saw a preview of him in a stupid Ant- Antonio Banderas movie where the kids dance. Uh, they're like delinquents, and I remember oh. he was in the preview. I'm like, that's Rufio <laughs> immediately. Yeah, he made a, a short film about. Uh, it was like a revisit of Hook. Um, it's like about. Uh, he's like the principal of a school in it. <laughs> it's it's interesting. Um, it just goes to show how far his career went beyond that. Um, they had a cool video where they had all the lo- all the kids who played Lost Boys, like they all met up again with each other and they all dressed up in their battle armor at the end. It was pretty cool to see. They had Thudbutt? Oh, uh, I don't think Thudbutt weighs that much anymore, but I think Thudbutt was there. Uh, good for Thudbutt. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Thudbutt, how, how did you bend like that? Like, how did you make yourself into a boulder? <laughs> <laughs> just, just over clear. You do know that was a dummy, right? I was not. <laughs> no, of course not. Okay, thank God. I always just thought it was bizarre that that okay. was in the movie. But, you know, Home Alone was a thing, and uh, even Spielberg understood that. that. You know, kids like kids like fucking people getting beat up and, yeah, <laughs> and traps and shit. <laughs> Nerf guns, goddammit. Wooden Nerf guns. Uh, and paint. Lots and lots of paint. Um but yeah, I don't know. I don't think this was a studio mandated ending. Um, it's it's an interesting ending because uh, it needs to be said. Uh, I forgot to mention it, but before the atomic bomb is detonated, um, our our gal Sylvia does um, remark um, six days as, as, yeah. as long as it took to make the Earth, um, which is what the scientific community is speculating that's how long they're expecting the martian invasion to take like for the conquest of earth six days um in the novel apparently it was weeks not days um so that was something that they definitely shoehorned in there a little bit though it does add to the immediacy of the story for sure so Mm -hmm. i I actually think that's better in some ways but um yeah I, i don't think this was an example of like studio tampering or someone with an agenda um it's just kind of how stories were told um especially in the 50s but um like the the loss of life and the chaos that earth is thrown into is is definitely treated pretty seriously in this movie mm-hmm. like you don't you based on like just the set design and like the color palette and stuff it, it you don't get the sense that like everything's thrown into chaos like you it's a very hopeful ending like you do get the sense of like oh everything's gonna go back to normal or whatever um so it's it's not like t- pushing things far enough that you could imagine like a whole tv series coming out of this story where it's like oh the aftermath of the martian invasion like they hmm. tried to do with independence day resurgence which is maybe one of the worst um many many years later sequels i've seen um there's been a lot of those lately and that really is one of the worst ones i can think of um but they start with a good idea where it's like you know there is a lot of alien tech that's just spread out across the land if we reverse engineer this shit we can probably do some serious damage with it but then they throw all that out the window um 
but yeah uh this was a fun one um kind of random but that's the whole point of yeah. uh, no theme november is we just you know go with whatever feels right so i'm, I'm glad that you had me take a look at the blu-ray especially because uh, damn the criterion collection makes a difference yeah, i'll tell you that much it does. <laughs> uh so what do you what do you got planned for next week no idea but it's no theme november so it'll probably come to me um and i'll let you know when i when i know <laughs> so it'll be a surprise for both you and the audience um but yeah uh, that being said uh war of the worlds directed by byron haskin i don't think we ever mentioned no. that, but this is from 1953 paramount production check it out on the criterion collection if you're going to check it out at all because it's very much worth your time um, but if you want to check out uh, any of our other Catching Up on Cinema content, uh, feel free to look us up on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, there you can find all of our 100-plus episodes collected. Um, and if you want to hit us up on the social medias, uh, we have an Instagram, at Catching Up on Cinema, as well as a Twitter, at Catching Cinema. So feel free to hit us up at either of those accounts, and please like, share, subscribe, and all that shit. (laughs) Um, But that being said, uh, thanks so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye!